decoded. Welcome to the Family Tech Decoded podcast, Series 4. I'm delighted on this episode to be talking to Chris Whitson, a doubly exited founder, most recently from Accrue in 2019 for $34 million US to integrate from which he's just completed his earnout in 2021. Since then, Chris has been pondering his next move, so to speak, and taking a look at what represents opportunity and uh, investment value, and starting to think about a term um, that we've that's come up in the podcast of well, that the next level of value and opportunities lie in scalable niches, sort of going deep down vertically into sectors. Um, and looking at problems anew, rather than perhaps looking horizontally in the B2B SaaS space, where it is noisier and harder to discern opportunities at the top of the funnel, even though that's a space he understands. So it's fascinating to kind of talk to Chris as someone who's you know achieved an exit that a lot of founders would sort of aspire to when they start their journey, and hear how after that exit, how he sees the venture landscape and how he as he says, is pondering his next move and what that move may look like. So, Chris, welcome to the uh, podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you on it. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the chat. Indeed. So do you want to just talk about, you know, the the, the, the two startups you exited from, what that was like, the experience of that, how that kind of came about before we kind of get to where, where you are now and the, the vista you're kind of scanning? Yep, sounds good. Yeah, so so for me, my, my startup journey began back at university in 2007. Um, uh, myself and a handful of friends, we all did year-long placements um, as part of our degree or year-long internships. Got back to our final year, all had pretty mixed experiences and um, decided to launch a website called Rate My Placement, which um, kind of does what it says on the tin. It was a before the days of Glassdoor, a, a review website where students could um, you know, write reviews of their experiences out on internship or placement for the benefit of other students following in their footsteps. And um, we had a, a lot of fun with that. It's still going strong. 15 years later, that business um, continues to um, go well. And within that company, um, we developed off the side of the review aspect of the website, a job board um, that employers could post their internship and placement listings and to fast forward two or three years in 2010 um, we raised a small angel round of 130k which in hindsight we didn't really need to raise I think it just kind of gave us that confidence boost that you know we had a business that we, we could really um, accelerate with and lo- looking back yeah those were the most fun years we were all in our kind of early 20s building a business with your best friends um, we you know, minimal risk in those days no no mortgages. We were saddled with student debt. Um, so it was quite easy for us to sort of fall into startup mode without any money and just kind of put heads down and work every hour available with, you know, no, no marriages, no kids, no mortgages. So uh, real great, great fun times as we built that business. Um, can, can I ask you just a question, Chris? Just sorry to interrupt yeah, sure. you. That's, so if you're, when you're doing that in 2007, what's the, what was the culture around starting a startup then you know what was the experience of just even thinking about doing that even like identifying yourself as a founder the ecosystem could you just give us a flavor of that because i think that's quite quite interesting it hasn't kind of come up before that you're just on the cusp aren't you really of web 2.0 and really you know yeah. that, that phase it was i mean 
again at the time you know we, we we sort of stumbled into it really at the time you know no one else was you know the startup scene was was non-existent at least from our perspective and it was yeah. you know not really a thing i remember my parents were quite shocked when i told them i wasn't going to go and get a graduate job we were going to try and turn this website into a business um so we just kind of put like i said put our heads down really it wasn't like we there wasn't really much of an ecosystem that we felt we could fall into to get support it was very much you know like i said the sort of naivety you have of youth that got us through those early years um and we also obviously launched going into the 2008 global recession yeah, which course, yeah. was actually for us a good thing because we didn't have any we didn't have anything to compare against it wasn't like we were suddenly seeing a drop in our revenue we had no revenue anyway so it was actually you know again in hindsight a great time for us to be starting um and exploring the opportunities that were there um so but yeah in terms of like to come back to your answer your question yeah there wasn't at least from our perspective that didn't feel like there was much of an ecosystem um for us to kind of head into so we yeah a lot of learnings along the way a lot of kind of making up as we go along making mistakes figuring yeah. things out um off our own back and obviously you know there's no founder tech at that time or anything i mean like i think people no. don't appreciate how because um, like, i started something around that time as well and it, like just it was a completely different landscape wasn't it it was just like it mm -hmm. wasn't it's not though it wasn't like it was tumbleweed of course startups are being launched and there's venture but it it, it it, it, we've never actually kind of looked into it on the podcast that that moment where you could kind of see all the opportunity and it was super exciting was also just mm. very very different from now um so it's interesting mm -hmm. to hear you know that you started at that time because most of the founders we talked to have started post that where it, mm. the market's got even if it's inefficient and kind of not easy to navigate it's a lot more sophisticated a lot more nurturing like like the, there's a lot more support on all levels from uh, on all aspects than there were back then yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I think now, you know, probably the most advanced tools we were using, we, we set up on Google Workspace and everything was kind of powered out of Google Docs and Dropbox came along for file storage and things like that. But yeah, and we added more things into the mix as we went. But yeah, it was very kind of, even back then, it's still kind of, well, as I say, I mean, it leads nicely into the next part of the story because we, as I say, we, we, we raised that money in 2010 gave us a little war chest to really get out on campus and dial up our marketing spend and pr promote the website. And we went out and did a hundred university career fairs, freshers fairs to promote rate my placement. And we signed up 40,000 students on paper forms, clipboards, paper forms, good old fashioned pen and paper, uh, you know, email address, what year are you in, what are you studying? Um, and then we would sit there and try and read the handwriting and type it up into an Excel spreadsheet and dump it into the database at some point. And a few weeks later, they'd get an email saying, you know, thanks for stopping by the stand at Bath, Freshers Fair, or wherever, wherever we were. So an incredibly inefficient, unreliable um, process that we went through. And like, there's a reason why I'm saying this part, because like, I guess a lot of great, business ideas it starts from trying to solve your own problem so we lost so many so much data that year um sat down with our, our kind of the rest of the team and the following year we were like look we can't use paper and pen again and so this is like 2010-11 ipads had just come out smartphones are obviously gaining momentum so we said okay let's let's go build an, a, a data capture app we need an app that we can take out on tablets mobile devices works offline um, and enable us to you know, capture the data much more effectively. So, so that's what we did. We, we solved our own problem, built this very 
rough and ready basic web app went around a load of cash converters in london and bought got our hands on as many ipads from probably <laughs> dubious sources as we, as we could um went out on campus the following year yeah did all these events again and it just transformed our ability to capture accurate information yeah. from students quickly get it into the system so solve their own problem and really help propel the the, the, the rmp that's the name of the, the student company rate my placement uh, really help propel that business and then we started to get interest from employers who were also the big corporate employers who do all the, the milk round events um i remember being at one of the big shows at the nec and ibm came up to us and picked up one of the ipads one of the, the head of graduate recruitment there and was kind of like you know tell me more about this app you're using because we're still getting students to hand over their paper cvs and fill in paper forms so we said yeah yeah it's an app we built and they were like could could we license it from you and obviously as you do you say yes we can make this happen so um we we kind of turned this rough and ready web app into some sort of product we knew nothing about SaaS back then nothing about software nothing about mobile apps other than we just had this app that solved this specific problem um but we we made it work um we got quite a few companies on board using it in in the student space and then to fast forward into the accrue story in 2013 uh, andy my, my co-founder and i um on the accrue side we just felt there were more and more opportunities for us to do something with this product outside of the the very small world of student recruitment events so Agreed with my co-founders on the RMP side that we'd sort of spin off the software into a, a second company called Accrue, kind of a, a play on the word to accrue data. And we um, launched Accrue in 2013. We, we did a small angel round then of 150K from our existing investors, just again to kind of give us a little war chest to get, get up and running. And we had a great ride with that business. We spent the first two or three years in the sort of search for product market fit. We did a lot of different um, experimentation at that stage it was very much it was a mobile data capture app so our kind of hypothesis back then was anywhere where people are using paper or manual processes to capture data in live scenarios they should be using our mobile app and we brought on lots of weird and wonderful customers weird and wonderful use cases we had sports clubs using it on match days to capture supporter data we had retailers using it at point of sale for loyalty schemes we had restaurants using it for capturing reviews at the end of a meal um, and increasingly b2b companies wanted to use the products at trade shows and exhibitions and conferences to capture leads um, and that was a world we knew nothing about we but the more we kind of looked at it the more we were just like okay there's some pretty pretty broken processes within this weird and wonderful world of b2b events and we kind of got to a crunch point in 2015, 16, where we were this sort of thinly spread product, trying to be a bit of a jack of all trades. Small team, still largely bootstrap, you know, we'd only raise a small amount of money um, and retailers asking us if we could integrate the product with a point of sale system and sports clubs wanted to hook it up to their marketing systems and B2B companies wanted to integrate with Salesforce. And we kind of got to this point where we were like, right, if we're going to do this, we just need to pick one problem and try and deeply solve that one specific problem get really focused and and we, we we went down the b2b trade show route the b2b event route because we just felt that was where the biggest problems were and and you can almost correlate our growth and our kind of uh, decision to go all in as a b2b SaaS annual contract company to that point and from there on over sort of 
2016, 17, 18, we kind of doubled our annual recurring revenue three years in a row and had a really, really kind of great ride. And very briefly, at a high level, I'm sure everybody listening has been to a trade show. You get given a badge with a barcode on or a QR code, or if you're, if you're an exhibitor, you rent some crappy 1990s barcode scanner, or you're using some clunky mobile app provided by the organizer. Um, and then you scan the badges and at some point you get a spreadsheet of all the leads that you've spoken to and you dump it in your marketing system and send a generic email out. And it's fine if you're a small company doing a handful of events a year, but if you're a big enterprise doing tens, hundreds of trade shows globally, that becomes a real problem of managing that kind of lead capture process at scale and getting those leads back into your marketing CRM systems quickly, capturing the context of the conversation at the on the trade show floor. So that was what our, our, our solution solved. We, we, we solved that problem as a universal solution for the end user exhibitor to take out to all of their shows, completely configured and customized for them on, on the mobile app, and then integrated back into their marketing automation CRM system. So if they spoke to a hot prospect and it was a great conversation, that could get fast track straight into Salesforce and the follow-up begin the next day, um, et cetera. And yeah, as I say, we had a great ride with that business. We raised, um, half a million in 2016 from a kind of broader range of angels and then in 2018 we raised our series a round and it was kind of part one about what would have been a two-part series a round uh, in the summer of 2018 we raised their uh, 1.75 million and just as we were kind of getting ready to put our foot down and accelerate um and uh, hire um, a bunch of people in the u.s where we were doing a lot of business um we had a acquisition approach um in august of 2018 so just after we closed that round and initially we were uh, it was kind of a no we were sort of like oh, we've just raised this money things are going great we've got a real clear path to 10 million arr and so yeah then we sort of go from there um but the more time we spent with integrate who subsequently acquired us um with their sort of c team and the, and the ceo the more we felt that was actually a really good fit and a really good match so to kind of bring that story to a close we uh, in april 2019 we um, went through with the acquisition and became kind of part of the integrate uh, story to switch tracks um into, into the integrate uh, story and then um, had a couple of years as part of integrate now as i mentioned our um, in april 2019 we completed the deal our product was very much uh, for the main use case was live in-person events and obviously, we all know what happened in March 2020. Yeah, yeah. So we were incredibly lucky. I mean, it was, yeah, I look back kind of bittersweet, really. You know, we were incredibly lucky to get acquired when we did because we were, obviously, when COVID hit and the whole of the global event industry shut down you know, pretty much overnight, indefinitely. Um, we were well insulated as part of the broader Integrate business, which was doing very well in, in other areas, the digital areas. So we were very lucky in that sense, but equally, it, it obviously meant yeah, a lot of the great work we built up and the customer base and the team we built up as part of a crew. Yeah, the more like everybody as those weeks and months went by in 2020, um, the kind of more obvious it became that this was not going to be passing anytime soon. So it kind of led to um, that, that sort of team and, and the business, although yeah, the product is still still going strong and actually starting to reemerge as part of Integrate. It just obviously was not a, a great year or 18 months or so as obviously COVID took hold um but anyway as part of integrate we had i had a three-year earn out um as part of the deal 
and then Integrate was subsequently acquired a, in a private equity deal at the end of last year, which was around the time of my earnout coming to an end anyway. Um, so it was kind of good timing, the right time for me to um, end that journey. And I, I took a bit of time out this year. Um, and then over the last four or five months, I've kind of got my head sort of back in the game a little bit. Been doing a, a mixture of some early stage angel investing, some advisory work with some interesting companies here in the UK. Um, whilst my co-founder from Accrue and I, we continue to sort of kick ideas around and think about what we want to do and where, where we want to go next and what our next, next business idea might be. So thanks for sharing the whole arc of that. Um, I, I assume you connected the dots between um, what you were doing with um, Rate My Placement and with the crew that you're basically still you're still talking to the customer in real time trying to sort of glean and discern valuable data it's the same same skill set but i'm assuming a lot more sophisticated sort of a decade on but it's it's interesting that you kind of started there and then the thing that enabled to achieve the exit was also essentially the same kind of mindset or extraction mm -hmm. if i'm i'm assuming you that you 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 yeah. kind of connected those dots like that's obviously there's 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 something about that process that fascinated you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just that you know the, the power of face to face live interactions, but equally being able to do something with that that conversation quickly. That that the, the data that's captured at that point of the conversation, we all know, kind of speed of follow up is is absolutely vital. So being able to whether it's get that student into the database and get that first welcome email out by the time they get back to their or they get their phone out their pocket, or whether it's a b2b high value enterprise lead that's had a product demo on a trade show booth and you know by the time they get back to the office on the monday the follow-up has already begun um yeah there were some like interesting kind of online offline challenges that we had to solve yeah uh, in both of those scenarios okay so going forward um you know, we, we, we thought um, about this idea of scalable niches so in the switch takes the idea that um there's a fundraising chasm and that uh, around quality deal flow starting pre-products um and what this is essentially saying is that there is this this there's this diminishment of these obvious b2b low-hanging fruit e-commerce marketplace kind of pitch debt driven top of funnel opportunities that not only is that noisy and very hard to navigate that actually as well there's just a, there's a there's a decreasing um, ratio of of, of of genuine opportunities because the, you know there are there already is Deliveroo's and there's already uh, Ubers and I mean those are the obvious lazy goes to but at the point still holds right and actually that what you want to get to is uh, opportunities that are starting in the pre seed uh, seed space but are starting inside these kind of much more vertical scalable niches that if you can get into them um, and kind of unlock the problem from a much more sort of research product innovation and genuine market um, insight and unfair advantage but those are the founders that um that you're looking to back or the opportunity and in this case um, i understand you're kind of looking for that opportunity um you are a kind of like co-founders looking for that kind of opportunity can you do one do you agree to, with that premise and two can you talk about like how you're trying to find those scalable niches yeah sure um yeah, I do think I agree with the premise. Um, I mean, I'm not obviously on the VC side, so it's hard for me to just say, I mean, are they are they experiencing kind of the deal flow dwindling? Uh, and equally, I feel like it's never been 
easier to start a business and, and, and get up and running. But I completely agree with the point, you know, that there are, it's very noisy, very crowded, particularly from the world where I come from, you know, B2B SaaS, marketing, sales, event technology. You know, I'm sure a lot of people have seen that Scott Brinker's MarTech landscape that has blown up over the last five years from a, hundred, a few hundred vendors to, I think the last version was like eight, there are 8,000 MarTech vendors in the space. Um, right. So yeah, we've seen like a lot it's incredibly crowded, incredibly um, competitive, and that has led my co-founder and I like the easy route. If we were, I think we're we're kind of getting ready to strap in again, and we feel like we've got time on our side, and you know, got the skills and experience to build another business. Um, and the easiest route for us would to be go straight back into the space we know, marketing, sales, event technology, but we're just in increasingly intrigued about this idea of um, going into what we kind of think of like underserved sectors. Like, we obviously live in a bit of a tech bubble, but at the moment you step out of the tech bubble and in, into some other you know, big sectors, um, like you say, these sort of scalable niches where there's tons of problems that nobody's trying to solve yet. Um, so we're in the early stages of like discovery there where we're we're not kind of daunted by the idea of looking at um, sectors we don't know a lot about because I think that forces you to go and do good discovery. It forces you, you, you know, you can't go into spaces with assumptions. You have to go and ask the right questions and, and do that right discovery to identify problems that we think we could potentially solve with with products, with software. Um, so let's say we're at the early stage of that journey at the moment, but it's just kind of taken us on some interesting conversations and into some interesting places. Do you think... Um... If you do identify a scalable niche, that you and your co-founder would look for another kind of co-founder, like a you know uh, that, that has domain expertise in that space. Mm. Yeah, that we've definitely talked about that. Like we we both we both got I think a desire to build a business that makes an impact. So whether that's in sustainability and in climate tech, and yeah, we have kicked that around of like maybe there is a sort of a third co-founder here that you know someone with that domain knowledge that deep expertise yeah we've we started to try and drive a few conversations with some of the universities who you know, mm. run masters in climate technology climate change sustainability and so maybe there's there is that sort of domain expertise that is missing um that we would need to bring bring into the team uh, whether that's as a co-founder or not i'm not sure yet sure. We'll, we'll see we'll see where that takes us but yeah that's definitely on our mind so the concept of um, founder market fit is obviously, uh, you know, a, a, pre a reoccurring theme and a, a dominant theme in, in this. Mm -hmm. One, it's propellers kind of like um, ballpark, um, and, and we're developing tech for it. But, the, but in in the in terms of kind of this finding this person, I'm assuming that their founder market fit is 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 what you would want to sort of kind of you know. Um, align with and kind of draw from how would you if you if you met that person let's just use the case study that you said mm -hmm. say a university that gave you something um, in construction something, something you mentioned mm -hmm. previously how would you how would you at the moment evaluate that person because considering you guys are really good at evaluating people in, in real time like how would you evaluate them around that found a market fit around that scalable niche within construction to say actually we want to align this what do you think you would, would be looking for yeah good question I, I mean i guess if i think about 
almost filling the gaps of the skills that Andy and I kind of don't have. So yeah, Andy's expertise in product technology and you know, building products, lines on the commercial kind of go-to-market sales and marketing side of things. So obviously there's this kind of domain expertise we'd need this person to have and, and this kind of domain knowledge and understanding of the overarching problems or problem that we think we want to solve. And then alongside that, and I guess then it's into the, the traits that I think make a good entrepreneur. So have they got the the curiosity, the, the passion, the can they demonstrate the sort of tenacity I think you need if you're going to go on a, on a startup journey? Um, are they thoughtful? Do they ask good questions? You know, all the things I, I'd be, these are the kind of things I'd, we'd be looking for of people who are like willing to kind of say dig deep peel back the layers, ask good questions, really try and, like I say, challenge and, and understand deeply the, the problems that we're trying to solve. Those are the kind of, I guess, the sort of common traits and characteristics I, th- I think we'd be looking for. Can I push on, on, on that a bit harder? Because um, yeah. there's, there's, there's just, it's an interesting thing there because um, before we, before we um, start press record, we were talking about that one of the reasons why you want to kind of go in cold to these sectors is because almost like ignorance is bliss. You're not coming in with the legacy mm-hmm. and the biases um, and therefore these kind of scalable niches are, are more easily addressed in kind of a cold manner. I mean, as in clinical, you can look at it, look at the legacy, look at the inefficiencies, look at the opportunities. Um, yeah. Do you think there's a danger in terms of, this This has never come up before, this kind of idea of finding a market fit. I'm not, you know, we've never had this kind of like third third person kind of scenario, like so whether they are a co-founder or whatever, but someone that you need to align with. If they were too sort of um, traditionally industry driven, then that kind of counteracts that need mm. for that freshness. Because what you're looking for is obviously a founder that is immersed in the space but is immersed mm-hmm. to the point of having a unique point of view with an unfair advantage, with a pre-established kind of influence and networks. Whereas just a domain expert might not be quite what you're looking for because they're going to may- maybe, or well, these are all suppositions, but they, they could default sure. to the to traditional biases, which would, I think, diminish the opportunity in the way that you're trying to exploit that scalable niche. What you're looking for mm-hmm. is that unfair advantage, that person who is immersed but sees it differently because of their own founder market fit, because of their own journey. Can you see that there's a kind of slight threshold of peril there if, if you just got something, yeah. <laughs> sounds like something from The Hobbit, <laughs> the threshold of peril. Um, but you know, you, yeah. you take my point. Yes, yeah, very much so. And I, I guess, um, yeah, you're spot on. Like. I think on one side, if we could, let's say we identified somebody who, I think what where where we feel like we have the expertise to build products and, and build a business, you're trying to find someone, I guess, who just who's kind of either identified a problem or as we kind of go through our discovery with them, we help them unlock. Actually, yeah, this is an obvious problem that myself and Andy could be saying, okay, well, we think there's a software solution to this or a product solution to this that maybe that person hasn't thought of, but they do know the problem in- intimately. So you're right, like it's going to be an interesting journey to kind of find that sweet spot. Um, so I think if we found someone who was like, I've already found the problem and I've already got the solution. I just need someone who can help me build it and take it to market. That would probably be, I don't think necessarily the right fit for what we're potentially looking for. 
um, no, it's, it's, that we shall see. It's an interesting. It's an interesting person that you're looking for. Um, we don't use the term as much. We're a few years in propelling. We were using the term a propeller, like someone who can pu- mm-hmm. you know, push the market forward. Like it sounds like that's what you're describing. It's like someone who's got you know enough momentum at the moment to create, to create, carve out space that they can kind of push into and pull, pull things forward, even even just t- incrementally, uh, you know, early on. And it sounds like you're kind of looking for that person, you know, the propeller in yeah. the space. Like the, 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 they might not even be recognised by. You know, some a lot of the time these people are hidden because they don't like mm-hmm. to necessarily be above the surface. They're just doing their thing. You know, I think of a few yeah. like that. You know, and they're, they're quite unique individuals, and they aren't commonly mm-hmm. valued or sought after. Mm-hmm. It always amazed me why sort of venture didn't kind of look for those particular kinds of people mm. rather than a founder, you know, who just kind of was going through the traditional pitch deck process because they are quite yeah. rare, but they are there. They're kind of like market makers in a way. Like if you can find mm-hmm. them, they'll. I'll tell you where it's going. This is what leads to the next point, which is like, are you for the next venture once you find it? Um, and let's say you find your in inverse comes propeller, whoever that may be. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, would, are you going to write a pitch deck? Like, are, 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 do you think you have to? Are you going to? Uh, would you, would, it's, it's kind of like a tripart question. Are you going to? Yeah. If so, are you going to do do it begrudgingly? If you aren't going to go do it, is it because you have the networks already and the, or the capital already? You know, like what? Like, if you had to, would you do it? Let me ask that question first. Yeah. So I guess in as I listened to the previous your previous conversations on this and thought about this kind of topic. I think almost like decouple the the story. Clearly, as a founder, you've got to be able to go tell a compelling story and the value proposition and why your business can grow successfully into the future and the opportunity there. Like that has to happen. You have to be able to do that. Sure. The medium in which you do that, I agree. Like if I never had to open PowerPoint again, that would be a great thing. So I for everyone, everyone in the world. <laughs> Yes. They would help massively. <laughs> yeah, just stop it. Um, I, I hope this that comment doesn't come out to haunt me one day. But, um, <laughs> You'll be bored by yeah, uh, the, yeah. yeah. But yeah, like I, I completely agree. With, like, the, and I think you've alluded to this on other conversations. Like, you know, you, you spend ages building the deck in PowerPoint and sweating over getting the slides looking good, and then you use it, and then it sits in a folder never to be seen again. So, I agree on that front. But, but like coming back to where I started, like just that. Clearly, the, the the need to go be able to tell that compelling story sure. is really important, and at the moment, it like the deck is sort of the thing that people use to tell that story. So, I'm definitely intrigued of like how what you're doing will enable people to tell that story in a, in a slightly different way. Um, but the story's got to be there. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're trying to leverage video and kind of create almost a TikTok versus mm-hmm. with a TED talk combined with you know, like, and, and it's recording a flight path, and it's a five, six, seven mm-hmm. minute very compelling video about the founder's journey. Yeah. And so you, cause you can tell think, so much about those cues, right? About when you're seeing someone convey that properly, you, that's, that's what most investors are assessing. It's like all of those, all of those dynamics yeah. that are going on in that moment. So why not leverage that moment as the first thing you look at yeah. and save everyone's time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. And I, I, I one of my pet hates about decks in general, is like people mix up their use. Like you need, there's a deck that is to be sent to somebody that they're going to read in their own time that is more like an information pack. And I kind of think, okay, a PowerPoint that sends a PDF or whatever can be useful for that if they want to go and digest it in their own time. But I think too many people mix up like that 
is the thing I'm going to use to present as well. So I'm putting slides up on the screen in yeah. front of investors or whoever with a million words on. And they're like, they're like am, I, am I reading these words or am I listening to you? Um, and that was one of like my pet hates a crew and integrate to seeing people mix up the use cases yeah, yeah. For, for what they're trying to do with the deck. I wonder, uh, never thought about this before, but with scalable niches, which does come up, like what's great about doing this is like you see the right terms surface, like the most useful terms, which is what this was all about. It's let's try and find some new vocabulary or language that's useful mm. and practical. And scalable niche is definitely, it came up in, in one of the episodes, um, season three, series three. Um, and I really like it. And I wonder what a, a deck, let's even calling that is, is, is sort of, creating a bias source, but what, what a scalable niche tool would look like. Do you know what I mean? They mm. uncovered a scalable mm-hmm. niche because I do mm-hmm. think that you are on the, like the vanguard of that. Like I, to me, like there's certain trends that, that, that are pointing to the future. And again, part of what we're trying to do is kind of point to where could this all be in two, three years time if these shifts yeah. change. And I think mm-hmm. more and more people will be looking for scalable niches. So what does the deck look like? what's it called if you're looking at scalable niches like what's mm. the tool look like and like almost you could you know you and your co-founder can almost devise your own version of that which could become mm-hmm. interesting in itself like take you know and almost start with that classic kind of post-it wall like what would that actually look like what would that tool look like because i i, yeah. I think that's i think they're very different questions you're trying to answer you know mm-hmm. trying to get different insights that the deck is definitely not built to do um mm-hmm. really, I don't, I, i've got no answers for that but I, I, it would be yeah. super interesting like what that might that tool might be and and you could see how you know once particularly if you're like syndicates looking you know with lots of capital looking for scalable niches and wanting to move quickly on them um what mm-hmm. what's the tool like do you have any thoughts yeah. like now now we're kind of talking I, yeah I, I hadn't had that thought before but there has to be a way of communicating that Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Uh, do I have any immediate thoughts on what that could be? Not necessarily, but I agree. Like the ability to demonstrate that this is a, a niche, a sector that is kind of underserved. There are opportunities here that you could look at other sectors. I mean, take the tech sector, right? I think there's a tons of ideas in the tech sector that could be taken and lifted out into other verticals that, that are kind of underserved these yeah. like I said these these niches um so it's kind of how do you tell that story to sort of show look if we take the, these ideas these concepts into these spaces that are massively underserved and modernize them with software and, and modern products um there's there's huge opportunities there that's, yeah, that's an interesting sure. story to be told it's, it is like the beginning of that story. I, I think I think you would, mm-hmm. if there was a pie chart, I think you know two three years time it's going to be a very growing sector of the venture mm-hmm. pie chart. Um, okay, here's a like, sometimes ask this as like kind of a quick fire round. So like one of the ideas is that um, the modern day kind of a, a sign that a, a founder and investor are having a, a you know a contemporary mm-hmm. conversation is that there isn't that asymmetry mm-hmm. between the founder and the um, and the investor. You know, and they're actually this sort of idea of the investor being, you know, above and doing the founder a favour. The forward-thinking founders and investors realise that's updated, and they're actually open, honest communication, you know, genuine feedback, um, um, and genuine kind of like um, uh, boundaries about like how that exchange might happen, time scale, ticket size, all of that. Knowing all of that is actually much better for both parties. And so what's the mm-hmm. shorthand for that is like um, 
that actually most founders and I think investors would prefer, prefer a fast no to a slow yes. Um, so one, do you agree? And two, what's your favorite fast no that you've received? Maybe you haven't received many because it sounds like you, your journey was pretty smooth, but I can't believe that's true. Like, like you must have had a fast <laughs> no where you're like, I really appreciate you picking up the phone or telling me to my face mm. or like, so that concept, do you agree with that concept and that kind of style of communication? Are you going to take that forward as an angel investor? Are you, are you aware of that and kind of making sure that, that actually there is this currency, just like we're talking about scalable niches are a new opportunity. Mm-hmm. The more sort of like you can be using founder tech to level out that conversation and then elevate like the actual real conversation between the two parties. Do, do, you, mm-hmm. do, you, do you, are you, are you going to hold yourself to that? And, and then a separate, what's your favorite fast note? Yeah, so I, I definitely agree. And if I think back to my own experiences, when we were considering taking on some proper kind of institutional funding, and we went and spoke to some of the big VCs in London, um, really kind of too early. We weren't really ready then to properly take on VC money. But I remember just like the, the process of like, okay, we're going to put on our best clothes and we're going to go and sit in these big fancy offices. And it was a proper like, teacher pupil you know parent child sort of experience of like you know we're here to show off to this yeah. big shiny vc and try and tell them how great our product is and actually and like i say it was too early for us at the time and but, but as the investors we did end up going with that our confidence had grown by then you know we, we had traction we had a good business that we believed in so actually inevitably the conversation became much more level and 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 it was much more of an equal, you know, they had capital, but equally they were looking for a great business to invest in. And that's what we had. So I completely like agree in any young founders listening, like if you back your product and have confidence in what you're doing and building, like remember that they've got, I think Carl alluded to this on your podcast a couple weeks ago, like, yeah. you know, you, you've got to go into it with confidence as well, because they're looking for investment opportunities just as much as you're looking for capital. So yeah, completely like on board with that sort of leveling up and, and then on the on the kind of fast no, we did a um, almost like a speed dating type uh, when we were raising our Series A. The the fund we we ended up going with the Conviction Investment Partners. They'd arranged a kind of almost like speed dating type um, show and tell dinner, for want of a better term, um, which was a really interesting experience to like be in as the founder and just like quickly kind of pitch a bunch of people around a table with deep pockets but knew nothing about our space knew nothing about the business yeah and it was daunting and it was not it was pretty uncomfortable at times but actually the output of that was like you know by the next morning you had a pretty clear list of people who were like okay i kind of get what you're doing and that's quite interesting and also there were a bunch of people who were like it's not for me like either i don't understand it or i can't see the potential or I'm just thinking of doing other things. So that was actually quite a useful exercise to kind of get some of those fast no's um, from from some of those investors and equally get some hopefully faster yeses. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's probably my experience of the kind of quick I like that. No's. Speed, speed date, fast no. It could be a, could be a yeah. name for a speed dating uh, format. It could be, yeah. It could yeah. be quite cool. Um, anyone listening, feel free to uh, to do that. It's it's, it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it's just a really useful term, you know. It's a really, and it's also because it it is it's quite it has a depth to it, isn't it? It's like it's it represents both totally. sides knowing each other's value and boundaries, and like starting with that rather than 
you know, you hear horror yep. stories all the time of, you know, you can get into a conversation and then it's like, oh, we can't make the investment for three months and we have to get a pre-, you know, all of a sudden, yeah. suddenly the founder's like mm-hmm. orientated towards that and has kind of like, yep. quite rightly so. I've been in meetings where investors have put their feet up on the table and said, you know, oh, you've got your SCIS, you know, and then like walk that back almost as they leave the room um, whilst the founder mm-hmm. is alive. And it's just, te- it's just, it's just not useful to anyone. Um, Completely, yeah. yeah um, I love, are you familiar with um, Dharma Shah? He's the, uh, one of the co-founders of HubSpot. No. He, um, he's, uh, a, he's a prolific angel investor as well. And he's kind of, publicly shares his sort of principles around angel investing and it's it's awesome he's like i give 24 hours yes or no i yeah, i, I don't i don't need a call with the founders i just will view admittedly the pitch deck he was like, i look at the pitch deck i will give an answer in 24 hours yeah. i will do no due diligence i will sign whatever paperwork you put in front of me if i think it's yeah uh, you know a, a, an investment worth making I'll, I'll you know, be minimal disruption. I'll get out of your way. I'll give you the check and, you know, be a supporter. And yep. it's well worth Googling and looking up because he's like, it's, it's such a founder friendly approach to angel investing that I think a lot of um, other, it'd be great if a lot of other angels sort of took that kind of approach. If you, you can email me that afterwards, I'll put that in the show notes because that sounds super. Yeah, I will do. That'd be yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just aware of time. So, so just, sure. just general, um, Founder tech in general, this principle of it um, kind of rewiring the ecosystem, because you talk a lot in that terms, like a lot of the time, the way you talk about products and software is essentially a rewiring, right? You're like making making networks and ecosystems efficient and do things that between analog and digital or migrate entirely onto digital. And that is essentially how what I see founder tech is. It's, it, it's taking all the low level functions of the venture ecosystem and make it highly inefficient for most good, you know, good actors, particularly these exceptional founders that are hard to find in these scalable niches. They, they, they don't fare very well and making all of that, you know, whether it's no code, low code approaches or, uh, you know, or, or, or tools, all the tools that keep coming up on, on the podcast, you know, the, the seed legals, mm-hmm. the vested, using landscape, all of this stuff that actually what that's going to do is as these things start to interconnect through APIs and start to understand each other, um, this is definitely something we're trying to do with black box. It's like it's suddenly that whole mm-hmm. ecosystem um, in two, three years just works right in a different way in the way that, yeah. you know, that you with your startups, it's a similar kind of art, right? There's uh, that the, the, just, it just works differently and better. And in doing mm-hmm. so, and I think this is what's so interesting about the founder tech proposition and promise is that it actually be it, it carries inclusivity and impact and diversity with it um, and even things like climate i think like that because what it does is it, is it draws and it says let's just say in the uk it doesn't matter where you are in the uk obviously it, it, it's global in, in, in it's, it's mm-hmm. intense well but you know wherever you are in the uk i say this a lot you know you're in a sort of small town in um, you know ireland and but you have this really 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 deep understanding of um, construction let's keep let's finish and keep with the analogy yeah and yeah. it's super like you've got this super like unfair advantage because you grew up around construction and you understand cement in a different way or, or whatever it, or the material yeah. materiality around cement in a different way you know once found the tech enables you to not only identify aligned investments like you and your co-founder which is the black box bit but then you actually can do all of the other stuff very very quickly you know you can do your seed fast or you can do your syndicate mm-hmm. or you can do your uh, cap table or you can find your freelancers that 
is transformative because it means that the best it's suddenly that's a level playing field because anybody can enter in and out of that ecosystem and then the best actors yeah. win right the best best founders mm-hmm. that win but then also the best investors win because those founders suddenly can go well i only want to be around those aligned investors that behave in this way and and that's mm-hmm. the supposition if you can start from that then surely it's better for everyone and surely like the risk Overall, maybe we can swing the nine out of ten failing from you know by a couple of points to seven out of ten. There's still obviously going to be massive risk and churn, but that would be a huge mm-hmm. delta, right? That would be a huge yeah. swing, which would have massive effect on innovation and economy. Mm-hmm. That that was a bit of a speech, <laughs> but, but, yeah. but, but you, like that's what I think. That's why I think this could go. And, and I think talking yeah. to you is it's we haven't had a founder that's understood. I think the rewiring component and what you can do when you rewire systems and ecosystems so i'd love to get your view on that to kind of close with it before the floor is yours to, to, to whatever you would like to leave us with yeah absolutely i like i you completely bought into everything you just said there because i think that's my own experiences whether it was just kind of the day-to-day running of the business as the founder to fundraising to going through the acquisition process and due diligence and just the sheer inefficiencies of all of those processes and tools we used and documents and and i remember like one of our one of my mentors and one of our early investors in my ear constantly when we were raising money and going through the acquisition process of like don't forget you've got a business to run you've still got to be in your numbers you've got to be and because all of the fundraising and going through due diligence and all of that you know that's not core business right it's not ultimately helping you move the needle i know it's a sort of byproduct of doing that but it's it's a hugely huge distraction and we had a fairly good run at raising money and and i know there's obviously other founders who end up going to hundreds of pitch meetings and massive time costs associated with that when actually you need to be focusing all your efforts and and, and brain power on building and innovating and building the business so anything that i think can help streamline that and and remove a load of those inefficiencies to ultimately enable founders to get back to doing what they do best which is building products and, and taking things to market it, it seems yeah it's a no-brainer to me and, and if you're if you're able to clear up a lot of the, the the tools through apis through integrations make that much easier process and, and that you know then rolls out into the, the vc funds the law firms the tax people all those kind of yeah. players that have to get involved in these sort of processes um just to okay again just save that a huge amount of time and inefficiency seems like a, a very strong strong solution to me yeah me too and i think i think the people that relate to this they all see that and they're all just like well, mm-hmm. you know if you're against that idea why you know it becomes like why yeah. and then there is there's, there's no intentional us in them because you can participate right you can use all the tools um mm-hmm. but it does become this kind of divide where people going increasingly well that's the future of what it should feel and look and behave like and you either are in that you know there's parallels i think to kind of how fintech you know the banks like monzo revolut basically said to kind of you know younger younger um savers or you know people people going to look this is how a bank should operate you know this is this is Mm, this is this is yeah and it's like either you believe in that or you don't and and Mm -hmm. and majority of people vote with their feet and go this is how it should operate and i think that's that's where mm-hmm. we're going to get to. Um, anything you'd like to say to anybody listening in terms of not not like a personal Christmas message, Chris, just to be clear. But uh, <laughs> but, but but anyone anyone uh, um, 
any, any anything you'd like to say about kind of you know what you're looking for around scalable dishes, how you'd like to be contacted, how you'd not like to be contacted, mm -hmm. the floor is yours. Sure, yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, yeah, so as I say, at the moment, I'm, I'm working with some early stage, generally B2B SaaS um, startups, you know, interesting people trying to solve interesting problems. Um, so I'm always keen to chat to founders who are, who are doing exactly that. And then on the you know, next venture side of things, if anybody's listening who's in one of these underserved sectors, underserved niches we've talked about, and you know, think there are obvious problems there, but perhaps haven't got the confidence or or have had the spur to go and think about how you might actually turn this into a business problem and also be very interested to have those conversations. Um, let's say we're in a lot of the kind of discovery mode at the moment. Yeah. So um, keen to have those chats. Um, you can obviously look me up on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the best place yep. to, to track me down. Um, and yeah. Sounds yeah. excellent. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Chris, for that story. Um, I hadn't quite appreciated right to the end, like the rewiring bit. Like it's like really interesting when you consider what you've done, um, you know, the parallels there. So, um, yeah, um, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Dan.